0: Welcome to the EcoSiv Podcast. This is Austin Roberts. At EcoSiv, we are collaborating with others around the world who are focused on making a transition to an ecological civilization. And on this podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the types of transformations required to move toward a more sustainable, peaceful, and equitable world. You can check out our website at ecosiv.org for more information. If you enjoy this podcast, you can help support the work that we are doing at Ecosiv by making a donation at our website. For this week's episode, EcoCiv's Managing Director, Jeremy Fackenthal, interviews author and journalist, Corinna Gore. They talk about Corinna's work as the director for the Center for Earth Ethics in New York, the moral dimensions of the ecological crisis, her interest in American indigenous traditions, studying liberation theology with James Cohn, challenging GDP as a measure of social well-being, the connections between women's rights and environmental issues, what gives her hope, and other topics. Corinna also lists three books that have significantly impacted her work, which you can find in the show notes. For now, Jeremy and Corinna.
1: I am very pleased to welcome Corinna Gore to our podcast. Corinna is director of the Center for Earth Ethics at Union Theological Seminary and is herself both a lawyer by training and a union graduate. Uh, Corinna, can you tell us what motivates your work at the Center for Earth Ethics?
2: Well, first of all, thank you, Jeremy, very much for that introduction and for having me on your podcast. I'm really happy to um, to be connected to you and your great work. And um, so the question is, what motivates my work at the Center for Earth Ethics? I am, I think, like, many people feeling the urgency of the time that we live in with regard to the, the pace of ecological destruction happening on a global level, and also the need to apply a moral, spiritual, ethical framework to thinking about these problems. So what motivates me is Quite simple. Uh, I am a mother of three children, um, and certainly that I think about that, um, and I think about us, the integrity of, of those of us who are on the planet right now, um, living in this situation. And I'm I'm really motivated by something quite simple, which is a desire for uh, some feeling of right relationship um, in my my life as a human being. I feel really out of out of out of sync with the natural world, and. Um, I feel a lot of these problems are very much related epidemics of anxiety and depression in our population and uh, rising pollution. So I'm, I'm motivated by a simple desire, I suppose, for inner peace and for, for a sense of integrity in, in, in life. Um, but I'm also motivated just by having found myself in a time and a place and in I suppose position or perspective where I felt like it was a responsibility to be a part of uh, an an action um, like the Center for Earth Ethics.
1: Yeah. The center describes the environmental crisis as a moral issue. Can you say more about that and why it's important to view the crisis in that way?
2: Well, it's interesting. I I suppose that many of us heard climate change or what used to be called mainly global warming uh described in scientific terms and um the reason for that was because the message was mainly coming from scientists and they they were um doing their best to convey the studies that they had undertaken about the effect of the pollution on the global atmosphere and and to be um, non-judgmental about it, to stick with the rationality and evidence-based, data-based language of science. So I think that what many of us have felt is that along the way something is lost. And uh, it's not just about the urgency, it's about why it is that we need to act to, to stop this. It's not only for um, sort of practical survival that that is certainly an important imperative mm-hmm. but uh, for many people, there are things about love and beauty and responsibility about uh, there there are things that for instance if if one of us saw something violent happening in our front yard, we would go out and intervene, or we would report it, we would act on it, because of a moral sense that we have a duty to to be involved in stopping harm to another person. So the idea is that needs to be applied to this situation, not just a detached observation. Yeah. Um, so I think, uh, you know, sometimes I think about this in terms of the like with the prison system, with math incarceration, another huge social problem, there are people for whom their primary motivation, it seemingly, um, to join a coalition to solve that is because it's exp- It's too expensive in their mind to house that many people in the prisons and to pay for their their food and shelter. Now, that is, that is not sufficient enough to deal with that problem because it, it what a moral lens does is it says these are human beings and their suffering is something that is wrong. And I think with climate change, we also don't want to just say in a very rote way, well, uh, here's the factual data. and, and, And so in order to survive, we have to address it. We want to also say, what is our moral obligation? Because it adds a whole other dimension and power to what we're dealing with. It motivates people more to solve it than just the fact-based evidence does, that's important. Um, And it also allows us to go to another level of understanding. At this point, we really need to if we're gonna have uh, the opportunity to change course.
1: It strikes me that um, sort of like the Institute for Ecological Civilization, Center for Earth Ethics, um, uses a sort of cross-sector or multidisciplinary approach. So by virtue of the fact that you are located inside a theological institution, um, obviously, religion is a part of of what you do. Um, can you talk more about how the Center for Earth Ethics engages across different disciplines or sectors as you do your work?
2: Yes, uh, I can. And I want to say I really ad- admire uh, EcoCiv and all the great work that you all do. And we really do come at this from a similar place in, in the sense that we very much want to look at root causes, we want to look at value systems, um, another aspect of, of what we were just addressing about why a moral why a moral lens on climate change is that when, if you want to deal with the root cause of a problem as opposed to just the symptoms, that will enable you to solve it in a more reliable way. Uh, and that is something that we really are interested in doing here at the Center for Earth Ethics. We are housed at Union Theological Seminary, which has a a tradition of leadership in moral philosophy and social ethics. Um, There were people here like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, like Reinhold Niebuhr, like James Cohn, and the womanist um, theology began here. So at the Center for Earth Ethics, we really want to uh, engage across disciplines um, because it's actually sometimes the rigid categorization of thought that has prevented us from finding solutions to things. So... um For instance, I mean, of course, we can see this in the most basic way with science and religion, right? So uh, it it isn't necessarily different to observe with wonder and awe the natural processes of the carbon cycle and to feel a kind of spiritual awe at creation and, and creator even for that life force that mysterious life force that is beyond understanding in some way, even to scientists. So these categories of thought have not served us very well in, um, in terms of understanding the place of humanity in the natural world. And we are at a reckoning. So we very much want to be uh, working across disciplines. One of the things about working uh, with learning from, supporting indigenous peoples through our original caretakers program is that it has really elevated a form of knowledge that challenges a lot of assumptions. And so that is exciting. Some indigenous peoples would not even identify themselves with religion uh, because that category itself is, is, is offensive or suspect in some way and doesn't apply to what they would see more as a way of life even though what that tradition entails has a prayer ritual ceremony involved in it, and to many people looks like religion. And of course, the categories that have been imposed by colonization and empire have um, tended to, and of course, academia, which we know is full of all that kind of way of thinking too. (laughs) has tended to diminish uh, what those indigenous traditions bring. So just that program alone, Original Caretakers, and I should say also that the relationship of indigenous knowledge and science is is very exciting. Um, And there's a a recent book which has grown popular by Robin Wall Kimmerer uh, entitled Uh, Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge and the Teachings of Plants. That's one of the texts that we use in in a class that we are giving, um, which is called interreligious dialogue and plant wisdom. So, uh, so that's some of the ways in which we we try to to cross uh, different boundaries um, and do interdisciplinary work in in how we're approaching these issues.
1: Can you talk briefly about um, your own involvement in or, or um, attraction to indigenous? ways of life and, and how you brought that into the center? Because that seems like it's something that's quite different to um, union's tradition.
2: I became interested and had the opportunity to learn about indigenous traditions because of my role organizing the conference in September 2014. So Religions for the Earth was uh, gathered over 200 religious and spiritual leaders from around the world, and it was very clear that indigenous leaders needed to be a part of that in more than a token way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, this comes from the force of their own voices and the growing realization in the climate movement of some of these connections between colonization and ecological destruction. Uh, so it certainly didn't just come from me, but I will say that my education at Union, which included for example, being a student of, of Professor James Cone, uh, who was a father of black liberation theology. I, and I took systematic theology from James Cone. He taught Vine Deloria in mm-hmm. systematic theology and we read God is Red, uh, and then introduced to other works by, by Vine Deloria um, as well, and other such uh, native voices. So um, I had been educated enough to know how imperative it was, and also it was at a time when the movement was really becoming more and more aware of of the importance of those those voices, and those voices themselves were were um, were taking a, a a place in in that dialogue. so I also did realize though how little I knew, so I sought out experiences uh, to learn more. About um, particularly Native Americans. So when you say indigenous traditions, of course that happens all over the world, and and we need to be very aware in right. Asia and Africa and Pacific Islands everywhere. Um, you're you're dealing with indigenous traditions, and and even in Europe, it, you, obviously mm. that's a whole other fascinating thing to go back in history, yeah. and see what vestiges are left in the Celtic tradition and all that. And I have found that to be among the most Fruitful and fun things to do. But um, I also uh, was particularly interested in Native American, or as some say, American Indian. Um, traditions because, gosh, it's also a lot of personal work to do as a, as a European-American white settler uh, heritage person. Yeah. So the opportunity to be able to actually face that um, was another component to this that, uh, that came in to that path. So in the months in which I was uh, able to organize this conference, I sought out those experiences. I was um, greeted and welcomed by people from Lakota, from Diné, from Onondaga, part of the Haudenosaunee, um, known as the Iroquois. Uh, and I was able to learn through uh, ceremony, through conversation, through presence together, in a way that was quite deeply moving to me. So as a result, um, that became part of the conference. And then when we founded the Center for Earth Ethics after the conference, it was a priority to make sure that we had a specific program to do that and that that, that program be led by an indigenous person. So that's, that's what we have today at the Center for Earth Ethics.
1: Wonderful. And it strikes me that uh, in order to, to shift the values or, or how we measure value toward focusing on the well-being of all people and the planet, the sort of shift of the narrative um, is necessary as well. And in part of shifting that narrative is maybe moving away from our sort of colonizer mentality of economic growth and progress. What ways have you found that work in terms of shifting that narrative for a larger portion of the population?
2: I think this is a very important component to the work that, that we're doing. And I really respect how Ecosiv, can I call you Ecosiv for short? Yeah, Does absolutely. <laughs> <work>? <laughs> has, uh, has taken this on as well. Um, and so I'm, I struggle with it a little bit because I found myself, uh, so convinced in a kind of aha way, um, by a couple of things that, um, that I'm not sure if they sound overly complicated when they're communicated, uh, to Mm. others. So let me just walk you through that briefly. One actually has to do with the indigenous people's issue, and that is the doctrine of discovery issue. So, um, the fact that this, um, this land when settled by Europeans, um, It came under the auspices of a theological doctrine that came from the Vatican um, in the 15th century that was the papal bulls um, that said, uh, that gave European explorers the right to conquer, vanquish, and subdue, this was Pope Alexander VI, um, all of the non-Christian pagan Saracens if infidels, and that actually specifically said that they're part of the flora and fauna, um, mm-hmm. these people. And this applied to the people of peoples of the Americas and the peoples of Africa. So that to me suddenly was a realization that the world looks the way it does, the the oppression and and such of people of color um, and and the, the the way that people think in places in, in the United States of America, about our relationship to, um, to, to peoples, to nature in that way that it's in, in the role, the way that Christianity has kind of taken on a particular form of, of, of Dominion theology in some cases seem to make more sense. The reason I think that this is very much uh, a part of what you're describing in terms of the economic value systems is that thing of sort of subjects and objects. What's a subject and what's an object? And, um, and, and of course, uh, Thomas Berry, uh, whose work has been influential for me, um, said that the universe is a communion of subjects, not a collection of objects, that that's a central realization we need to make in our time. And I really find that's true. So the thing with GDP, uh, for example, is that it only counts, um, it it doesn't count uh, pollution, depletion of resources, inequality um, or things like positive long-term outcomes to do with if you invest, like for instance, if you don't chop down a forest, you know what, that, that, that gets you nowhere with GDP. Um, But it, but it of course has huge benefits for many other reasons. So, so, I think that that comes out of the same mentality that is conquer, vanquish, and subdue all non-Christian pagans, Saracens. They're part of the flora and fauna. It's certainly conquer, vanquish, and subdue the flora and fauna. Um, so that's I, the the doctrine of discovery and the analysis of GDP to me are very convincing. Mm-hmm. There's one other way that I uh, think about this, which is a little bit simpler, which is just that idea, that term externalities from the language of economics. And the idea that we've allowed this narrative to take over that um, as you know, our current president says, America should be run like a business. Um, many people have that mentality. And even in the, the Democratic Party, in, in addition to the Republican Party, and of course, some people would say that the central fast tenet of neoliberalism, that things should be run like businesses. Mm-hmm. So if you have a, a, a term from the business community, which supposedly should, should get this kind of um, authority uh, that is externality, meaning don't just don't count it and it doesn't exist, Yeah. right? <laughs> and that's how you think about pollution? Okay, so no wonder we're in this situation, right? And so it seems to me like we have to go really back to basics. And that has to do with also understanding, I mean, there's a whole another other analysis to do, which is a very vital one, I think, about gender, mm-hmm. women's work, mm-hmm. um, things that weren't traditionally considered part of the economy or weren't traditionally considered part of the business of government were nonetheless incredibly essential for right. happy human lives. Mm-hmm. Taking care of children, making a home, building a community, the the all of those things. And so if we suddenly just devalue those and don't pay any attention to them, um, then of course we're going to be living in an absolutely degraded, uh, condition. So that's part of it too. And so rather than um, w- what we have to do in part is what some of some actually uh, this already came a little bit from women social workers during the, the, the um, early 20th century, the progressive era, and then the New Deal era. What happened was some of these women social workers and, and, and some of them, like Alice Hamilton, who I wrote about once, who became a, a doctor of industrial medicine, which wasn't a field. Um, she became the first faculty um, woman faculty member at Harvard University um, in in 1919, I believe it was. But she wow. she she and people like Frances Perkins, who was behind the idea of social security. Well, it used to be that things like old age insurance or um, worrying about runoff from industrial processes into streams was a kind of like feminine sentimentality. You know, it wasn't really sort of hardcore enough um, for the things that men and governments were supposed to deal with, in part because women were doing unpaid labor dealing with it. And it's not that I'm arguing that all of that labor should be paid or that it should be, but those things need to be respected. So we actually have to finish Some of the work that was started. Rachel Carson, of course, is another big one in this regard, who started to draw people's attention to things that were not considered worthy of the sort of hardcore male scientist purview. So um, I'm sorry to give you such a long answer, but it's actually like you asked the one question, which is my biggest concern (laughs) right now is how to think about it. So these are some of the ways I'll just try to say modestly I'm trying to think about them. But I'm very interested in precisely this dialogue with, um, with you all at Ecosiv, with other people, because I think we have a, a lot of work to do to simplify and communicate it in a broader way.
1: Right. Absolutely. Yeah, that's one of our biggest goals for, for the year to come is learning how to translate that narrative or how to shift the narrative and translate it to a, a wider audience. Thinking about um, neoliberalism and the current political climate, it's easy to be pessimistic about um, the future of our planet and and our work in this movement, but where do you see hope uh, in the movement for a sustainable future?
2: Well, I definitely see hope because of people. I think that the level of discomfort that people feel with the status quo is actually hopeful. So um, it's not to say um and and i was saying before epidemics of anxiety and depression that's not a good thing but you know there was a union student i just saw gave a sermon um the other day i didn't see the sermon but i saw an account of it uh, rob stevens said if you pass a lake and you see a fish belly up uh you'll say well what's wrong with that fish um if you pass the same lake uh the next day and you see 20 fish belly up you say what's wrong with the water And I think that that is a situation that many people find themselves in where so many people are feeling some lack of balance, some distress with the the current way in which our societies are organized. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, if you make yourself aware of the environmental injustice issues, how many people are living in absolutely deplorable conditions because they're next to the place where the toxic uh, sites are located um, and such – then we are becoming more, as Pope Francis says in Laudato Si'. Uh, another thing I, I would I would add that gives me hope that yeah. that really very strong document um, right. uh, that came out um, several years ago from the Vatican. Um, but he uses the the term painfully aware, and I think that we are becoming painfully aware. So in that way, that actually gives me hope but we have to be able to be with each other to be in solidarity with each other to see the best in each other as we're working on this so that we can actually break through that and use it as a kind of fuel for for the the progress that we need to make
1: yeah great thank you as you think about um your work and how you've moved into um, your role in the center for earth ethics what are three books? And we like to ask this question to different um, folks who come on the podcast. What are three books that have inspired you or impacted you in some way?
2: Um, so that's a very hard, it's a challenging question because it does feel as if narrowing, um, it,
1: down. <laughs> yeah,
2: narrowing it down is very hard. Um, you know, I, I want it given the context in it uh, of of what we're talking about. Uh, I want to mention a book that I just read in the past few years because it has to do a little bit with process theology. And that is uh, Monica Coleman's Making a Way Out of No Way. Um, And it's, I really loved that book. Uh, It's a work of theology. And Um, Professor Gary Dorian is the one who uh, is responsible for me reading it Um, I wasn't a student at that time I've been working at Union but I was a student of his before when I was here at Union anyway um, the thing I love about that is that it brings together some of the insights of process theology that for instance when you're talking about climate change and I read her really in a succinct way saying for process theologians God is not the exception to the metaphysics of the world, but rather the chief exemplifer of the metaphysics of the world. Exactly. I'm yeah. saying that right.
1: Yeah, you nailed it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> that yeah. is very insightful. I Definitely. mean, it actually is the kind of thing that um, articulates something that I really already believe but had not quite put into language like that. So I really appreciate that about that book. I also appreciate how she um, holds together uh, Yoruba traditions um, and Christian traditions and um, really uh, deals with the difference between theology and metaphysics and all of that. So that book has helped me to... um, to think about some of these issues, and I really appreciate it. I would also say, well, I mentioned before Braiding Sweetgrass, The Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants by Robin Wall Kimmerer. That book is one that does a a really beautiful job explaining why science and and Indigenous wisdom um, have so much in common in many ways, and uh, and articulates uh, concepts like reciprocity that I think are um, are really important. It's very interesting because it gives you this lens, the mainstream way of thinking in the United States as, as I've experienced it. I was always told it was sort of secular and neutral, but when you start to realize how devoid it is of certain things, like the idea that there's a reciprocal relationship between humanity and the rest of nature, um, I mean we don't have that same kind of way of acknowledging and giving thanks to a river or, or, or whatever you might point out. And that, is seen as secular, but in fact, it's also a kind of claim that there is no relationship there. It becomes a kind of claim in itself that has a religious nature, if I'm making any sense. Anyway, Mm -hmm. that book is another one that I have found really valuable. And then I might add, if it's not too cliche, I might add Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, Mm -hmm. uh, because I finally read that just about maybe five years ago. And it was something, a book that I knew had very much impacted my life because my grandmother had been aware of it and made my father aware of it when he was a pretty young man. And so it, had a role in his life and career, and he's continually referenced it. So I was aware of it, but I hadn't actually read it until um, I, I already had my my union education, and I finally thought, okay, I got to read this book. And I was really amazed at how prescient it was um, in terms of understanding, for instance, warning about monocropping as opposed to uh, the way that actually agriculture more naturally works with plants having relationships to each other and growing together. Obviously the whole idea of ecosystems in general and the effect of, um, of toxins on them. And I mean, even the title silent spring, I had always kind of thought that that was because of a, of a spring, like a body of water for some reason. And then I realized, no, it's because the birds died. Um, and so there wasn't the same sounds of the birds chirping in spring because of course the pesticides that were meant to kill the insects also killed the birds. So that book is, is another book that, um, that I would point to as, as influential in my life.
1: Great. Wonderful. We'll post those for our listeners and encourage them to read. Krina, thank, thank you. you so much for your, taking the time to join us today and for this great conversation.
2: Oh, it's been wonderful. It's been my pleasure. Many thanks to you, Jeremy. And I hope that we can talk again.
1: Yeah, definitely. Thank you.
2: Okay. Thanks.